Good morning, y'all. I'm Tana Marks. My family and I are part of the Roar Community Group. What, what? This morning, we're going to be reading Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through 41. I'm reading from the ESV. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down to him in homage. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to a place called Galgotha. Galgotha which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw the way, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him, ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you, Tana. It's a cool name, by the way. So almost sounds like Tanner. By the way, my name's Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here at Redeemer Odessa. It's good to be with you this morning. If you are a guest There's a connect card under your chair. If you would take a minute, fill that out. We would love an opportunity to connect with you to see how we could serve you and get you plugged into the life of the body. And if you need a Bible, Matt's got them back there. You can raise your hand and he'll bring you one. If you're on your phone or your tablet, we use the ESV. Um, Also, if you're a guest, we've been in the Gospel of Mark since February of 2021, and we are coming into the home stretch of our Mark series. This this week plus two and we're gonna wrap up the book of Mark. But I don't think it's a stretch or an exaggeration to tell you that uh, this text today and the one next week 
are the most important, or talking about the most important event in human history. Against these two events, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, there can really be no comparison in terms of what actually took place, in terms of the significance for the whole world, and in terms of what Christ accomplished. So just going to think we should just jump in and get to work unpacking it and see its important for, uh, importance for us today. And so as we're working through this text together today, I want you to consider this. The crucifixion of Jesus is not an accident of history. It's not a consequence of events that took place 2,000 years ago in some Middle Eastern city. It is a result of a divine ordinance that existed since the beginning, before creation, from eternity past. Jesus was always plan A. The necessity of the crucifixion is not God being reactive to the fall of man, but the crucifixion is God being proactive in his relentless pursuit of his creation for his glory and for the good of the created order. So one of the ways that we know this, that I'm going to try to point out to you this morning, is, is just the amount of prophetic words, the amount of prophecies fulfilled in this text this morning during Jesus' life, and more specifically during the final hours of his life. So man, as we pray in a minute, I just pray that the beauty and the significance of the cross will draw you into this wonder and into this worship and into the mystery and beauty of God. This God who willingly chose the cross to make salvation possible for those whose faith and trust is in him. So let's pray. Lord, we love you. Lord, we need you. Lord, may we see the cross for exactly what it is. Lord, by it you bring many sons and daughters to glory through faith and dependency in you. Lord, thank you for satisfying the wrath of God on our behalf. Lord, and may the truth and the beauty of the cross and the resurrection, may the necessity of the cross and resurrection in our lives bring us to faith and repentance and dependency on you this morning, Jesus. Lord, stir our affections. Lord, encourage the faint-hearted. Lord, bring conviction where conviction is needed. Bring encouragement where encouragement is needed. Church, if you're willing, I'd ask that you pray for yourself. That the Lord would illuminate any idolatry in your heart. That the Lord would illuminate any sin that you don't know about. That the Lord would lead you to repentance and faith in areas where you're walking in unbelief. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So last week we saw Jesus before Pilate. Um, over the last few weeks, there's been kind of this progression. Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, he's tried illegally by the religious leaders who arrested him. The religious leaders of the day have gotten their man by betrayal from one of Jesus's 12 disciples, Judas. And after they've tried him, and after Jesus confesses himself to be the Christ, the religious leaders accuse him of blasphemy, which according to the Jewish law is punishable by death. 
But since their trial of Jesus was illegal in the first place, based on their own law, they then had to hand Jesus over to Pilate, who uh, was the governor of Judea, who was working for Rome. And so in order to avoid a riot at Passover, uh, that would have meant if the riot breaks out at Passover, that would mean that Pilate is doing a terrible job. And so Pilate allows Jesus to be sentenced to death and releases Barabbas back to the mob. The innocent Jesus exchanged for a guilty rebel. The Jewish leaders have gotten the sentence they desired from the Roman government. Pilate then has Jesus scourged, which means they had Jesus beaten to the very brink of death. And then Pilate delivers Jesus over to be crucified. And we're going to pick it up right here in Mark chapter 15, verse 16. It says, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. So just to start, Jesus has been in custody now about 12 hours. So it's Friday morning when this text takes place. Jesus was arrested Thursday night fairly late, and the text tells us that the soldiers led Jesus away. Take note of this. For the last several hours, Jesus has allowed himself to be passed around from one person or individual or one group to another. Jesus, for the entirety of his earthly ministry, has moved with this God-ordained control, this God-ordained sovereignty. And so while all of this is occurring to Jesus in our text today unjustly, God is, in fact, enacting his justice in order for creation to be restored back to him. And none of this, none of what is happening to Jesus is surprising to God. Jesus is being led around as a religious and a political prisoner, and he's doing so in order to satisfy God's wrath against the sins of man. And in doing so, Scripture is being fulfilled moment by moment. As Jesus is passed from the hands of Judas, his betrayer, into the hands of the religious leaders, into the hands of Pilate, into the hands of Herod, back to the hands of Pilate, and then into the hands of the soldiers, and then ultimately into the hands of God, we are reminded of the suffering servant prophecy in Isaiah 52 and 53. And so just as a little disclaimer... I'm probably going to break some rules of, of expository preaching. Expository preaching is uh, this discipline that goes verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, all the way through the Bible. Um, and we like to stay anchored to the text. This morning, I'm just going to hop around just to show you um, some prophetic pictures that are being fulfilled in this, morning, uh, this text this morning. Because it's important for you to see that these events are not just occurring but rather they are God-ordained moments. So Isaiah 53, 7 says this about this suffering servant. It says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Jesus is again showing himself to be this Passover lamb who is coming to take away the sins of the world. Jesus is here before what the text says, a whole battalion of soldiers. That means 600 soldiers. 
And in a shameful and disgusting scene of human depravity and sadism, they're mocking Jesus. Look at what happens, verse 17. And they, being the soldiers, clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of his purple cloak, and put his own clothes back on him, and they led him out to crucify him. So this is a first century version of uh, police brutality. While the agony of the crucifixion is a primary, primarily spiritual agony, I don't want to minimize for one second the physical anguish that Jesus was put through. So after Jesus has been scourged by these soldiers, they bring him into the palace, regarding him as some wannabe king, They regard him as a person deserving to be mocked for his claims. And these dudes went to work. They stripped Jesus of his clothes. Keep in mind, he had just been scourged. So his wounds are fresh. And so this is a painful process of getting your clothes jerked off of you by these soldiers that are not inclined to gentleness. Then they threw this purple robe on him in a way to mock him because that purple is a color deserved for royalty. Then they twisted this crown of thorns together. I want to take you back to the first messianic prophecy in Genesis 3. After the fall of Adam, God tells Adam, you're going to work the ground, and it's going to produce for you thorns and thistles. Upon Jesus' head in this moment, is a reminder of the curse that he came to redeem us from. They placed a reed in his hand, which is a mock scepter. Then one by one, these soldiers would come and kneel down before Jesus, paying like a mocking tribute to him. Then they'd take this reed from his hand and they'd whack him in the head with it, pushing the crown of thorns down further and further into his skin and into his skull. And after they finished, after they'd had enough, after the spectacle was over, they removed the purple robe from him, reclothed him, and led him away to crucify him. And as this shameful event in the palace has ended, there are a few things for you to consider. Man, what we see in this moment is just how wicked and evil man's hearts and minds are. We see these men for a game. For a joke, hit on and spit on and seek to humiliate not just Jesus, but an actual person. Man, it's easy to look at this and think, that is awful. And it is. But before we move on too quickly from this event, I want to tell you that because of the sin in the world and the sin in our lives, we are capable of the same evils were it not for God's grace to you. Man, and if we're not careful, we can enter into this space very passively by not being empathetic to the fact that people have been hurt by other people. Perhaps a better way of saying this People made in the image of God, hurting and mistreating other people made in the image of God for whatever reason. And when that takes place, that screams that something inside of us is not okay. And my response, oftentimes when I look into these events, is not to grieve these injustices, 
And when I don't do that, when I'm not moved to any kind of emotion or compassion or empathy, man, it says there's something broken inside of me. From conception to death, we are broken people. Christ went to the cross not only to save our souls, but to redeem our sinful condition. And with this as the background, we can take comfort from the fact that God's word is dependable. During these final moments of Christ's life, Scripture is being fulfilled with every mocking word that they utter, with every blow that Christ received at the hands of these soldiers. Look, I highlight a few here. Psalm 22, 6-7 says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and wag their heads. Isaiah 53.3 says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. 53.5 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Isaiah 53, 7 and 8, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. Isaiah 53, 10, it was the Lord's will to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And so I think it's safe to assume that as Christ was enduring all of this, because Christ is God, he knows that scripture is being fulfilled. And perhaps, perhaps he's being comforted by the fact that the word of God is sufficient and he's being comforted by the supremacy of the Word of God. And I think that would lead to a solidification of the plan and purpose of God through Christ to endure the cross. Because of the fulfillment of Scripture in and through Jesus, God's redemptive plan and purpose is being fulfilled. So these soldiers are leading Jesus away to be crucified in order that these things would be accomplished. Jesus was made to carry his own cross. Whether that was the whole cross or just the cross beam, we don't know. But it's at least 100 pounds and it's placed upon Jesus' back. And he has been through so much physical torment that his body cannot physically carry his own cross. So look what happens in verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Simon was from this African country of Cyrene. It's today's Libya, if you look at a map. And as he's passing by, perhaps he's there for the Passover, they grab him and make him carry Jesus' cross. But his mention in the story is significant for this reason. Simon, according to church tradition, would become an observer of Jesus' death and his resurrection. Specifically, he's an observer of the crucifixion because he carried the cross. Because of his encounter with Jesus, he would become a believer, and so would his family. Mark is writing to Christians in Rome, and so he mentions Alexander and Rufus. Rufus is actually a recipient to Paul's letter, Romans. 
So Paul tells the Roman church at the end of his letter, hey, greet Rufus for me. Say what up to Rufus. So Mark is including this for his Roman readers to further the historical confession and Mark's own claims, as well as Jesus' own claims, that Jesus was indeed who he said he was all the way back at the beginning of his letter. Mark 1.1 says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Man, so this is a missional verse for Mark, for believers in Rome. Rufus' presence in this church is evidence of this. This church in Rome has an eyewitness to these things. They can ask Rufus about it. They can ask his brother about it because they were there. Their dad carried Jesus' cross. Rufus, the son of Simon of Cyrene, was a leader in the Christian church in Rome. And it's one of the most important cities in the day, one of the most important cities in history, especially for this time period. And again, I want to call you to consider that the sovereignty of God is in view over this entire situation. So on this journey, Jesus and Simon go. Verse 22 says, And they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. This place is outside the city of Jerusalem. It's at a crossroads, like a main thoroughfare of the region. Very highly trafficked. The Romans wanted you to know if you were under their reign. They wanted you to know how they were going to deal with you if you were convicted of a crime. Verse 23, And they offered Jesus some wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. This wine and myrrh mixture would help dull the pain, but Jesus wouldn't drink it. Jesus was going to be in full control of his mental faculties as he faced the agony reserved for you and I. Verse 24, And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. With simplicity, Mark tells us twice that the soldiers crucified Jesus. This is a punishment generally reserved for slaves and those who have committed the worst of crimes. And they crucified innocent Jesus. And at the base of the cross, the soldiers are throwing dice and gambling for Jesus' clothes. Like Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Jesus was crucified naked and exposed. John Calvin talks about this event like this. Mark portrays the Son of God as stripped of his clothes, that we may know the wealth gained for us by his nakedness. For it shall dress us in God's sight. God willed his Son to be stripped, that we should appear freely in the garments of his righteousness and fullness of all good things. One of the saddest things about these soldiers is that they would leave the cross with Jesus' clothes and not leave the cross with repentant hearts. They'd leave the cross with Jesus' clothes, but no changed hearts, no changed lives, no Savior. Just symbolic mementos of the most tragic day in history. Listen to me. May this not be true with you. And we have become so desensitized to the cross. Meaning this, during the first century, it would be so scandalous to wear a cross necklace or to hang a cross on the wall of your home. 
Man, but it's become something we ornament our bodies with without giving much thought to its original purpose. The cross was a tool for execution. And the cross of Jesus creates a bridge for sinners to receive forgiveness and mercy and grace and sonship and reconciliation back to a God who loves you. And yet, we function oftentimes like it doesn't mean much for us. We show up to church when it's convenient for us. Many in our churches show up sometimes when their schedule will allow it. Community groups when they can fit it in. Read their Bibles or pray occasionally or never. And we get crosses tattooed on our bodies. And our lives look nothing like what God has called us to. Our lives are not marked by faithfulness and obedience to Jesus. And we don these instruments of torture on ourselves in the form of tattoos or jewelry or tchotchkes to hang on the walls or put on our shelves. And the irony is, for a lot of us, our lives bear no fruit. Our lives bear no fruit that indicate we care about the cross at all. The irony is, we can put on a cross necklace and have nothing to do with Jesus. Culturally, we treat Jesus like another thing we have to do or some kind of an option rather than the Lord of the universe and Savior of our life. We minimize his life. We minimize his sacrifice and live like none of this even matters, except when it's convenient for us or when we need something from God. And in his mercy, Jesus looks down from the cross at the soldiers gambling for his clothes, And he looks down at the mockers in the crowd and he prays, as it says in Luke 23, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Man, when we misuse the cross, when we minimize it to a decoration or a tattoo or a piece of jewelry, or when we claim to be a Christian and don't care about the things of God, when we claim to be a Christian, when we really have no interest in actually following Jesus in faith and obedience to Jesus, Jesus looks at us with grace and mercy, which is available to you because of the cross. He prays for your forgiveness because apart from Christ, we are wandering around in darkness, not knowing or not wanting to know that we're separated from Christ. Man, if this speaks to you, if this is you, man, it's God's kindness to you on his cross that creates a way for you to be in a right relationship with him. Stop treating Jesus like an option. Repent of your sin. Repent of your unbelief. And live for Jesus. Don't treat Jesus like anything other than what he is the Savior of the universe who is pleased to offer you forgiveness and grace and mercy. Consider your relationship to Christ this morning, friend. Verse 26. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. 
and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. There's more mockery here. Mockery in the sign above Jesus' head. Jesus is also being crucified between two criminals. Um, as it says in Isaiah 53, 12, it says, Because he poured out his soul to death, he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession, intercession for the transgressors. The injustices continue, man. Innocent Jesus being punished like these robbers as if he were a criminal himself. The text says that these two robbers were reviling him as well. In the other Gospels, one of these men actually seems to repent while suffering his fate. Perhaps the silent faithfulness of Jesus leads him to repentance. And Jesus doesn't return insult for insult. Rather, he saves the soul of this man on the cross next to him. This man has moved from mockery to trust. And he meets Jesus in death. And if you believe what the Bible teaches about eternity for the believer, he is not disappointed when he gets there. No one will ever be disappointed in the end for faith and trust and dependency in Christ. So in rapid succession, Mark tells us that there are these people passing by, making fun of Jesus. Save yourself, Jesus. Um, The religious leader is the same. They say, hey, he saved others. He couldn't save himself. And here's what I'm going to submit to you. Jesus could have easily saved himself. He is God. Growing up, I used to wonder, like, why he didn't. I mean, think about it. All of a sudden, Jesus, hanging on the cross, comes down from the cross right in front of the high priest and says, like, I told you I was God. What up? And then they'd have this, they'd have a potluck fellowship in the fellowship hall And many would come to faith. That was my reasoning, right? Jesus would come down from the cross, a bunch of people would get saved. But consider this. If the miraculous healings that Jesus performs, if the miraculous works of Jesus, if his power and his grace, if his teachings, if all of this prophetic fulfillment doesn't move them to belief in Jesus, but rather harden their heart towards him, I would argue that a descent from the cross would not have moved them to salvation. It would have moved them to more envy. And so Jesus remains affixed on this cross. One commentator says that the implications of Jesus in their mockery is that Jesus' weakness is what is keeping him on the cross. But rather, it is not his weakness that is keeping him there, but rather it's his strength. His strength found in love for sinners. If Jesus were to come down from the cross, then we would still be vessels of wrath. If Jesus were to come down from the cross, we would still be vessels of destruction, and we would still need to be saved. We would still need a Savior. And it's exactly because Jesus stayed on the cross that Jesus didn't come down from the cross that he is and can be our Savior. 
Verse 33, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. So at noon the sky gets dark. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. And I didn't realize I was going to be following Aramaic scholar Tana Petty Marks. Um, Eloi, Eloi, Lema Sabachthani means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a, a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. This is perhaps the most heart-wrenching statement in all of Scripture. This is when the Father turns his face away from Jesus. The Father's holiness will not allow him to maintain the company of sin. And at this moment, the sins of the whole world, past, present, and future, are laid upon Jesus. So Jesus quotes Psalm 22.1 in a moment of lamenting the separation and abandonment he's feeling. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? We see Jesus pray a lot uh, through the Gospel of Mark. This is the only time in the prayers of Jesus that he's calling God my God instead of my Father. According to Achan, this is the moment when God's view of Jesus is not God the Son, but the sinner's sacrifice. Jesus is forsaken. Don't lose sight of this. God the Father did not intervene on Jesus' behalf. He did not save him from the cross. Jesus endures the crucifixion. He is not spared from it. We, on the other hand, deserve this crucifixion. And we're spared from it because of Jesus' faithful and enduring sacrifice. Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23 says that anyone who is hung on the cross is cursed as Jesus was. Jesus became the curse for us. He is forsaken in the wrath of God for the sake of many. It is the Lord's will to crush him. It is the Lord's will to strike the shepherd. The prophesied suffering servant will be delivered, but only on the other side of being forsaken in the place of many. And as Jesus is hanging there, living his final moments in pain and agony, look at what happens. Verse 37. And Jesus uttered with a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus with a loud cry says, It is finished. His work is accomplished. The atonement, the payment, the sacrifice has been made once and for all, and it is completed in Christ and will be completed fully by means of his resurrection. And at this moment, the veil was torn, top to bottom and completely. This curtain was separating the temple from the Holy of Holies, the place where God's Spirit would dwell until this moment. By the tearing of the curtain, we see that salvation has been achieved for repentant sinners and that God has accepted the complete and sufficient sacrifice for the forgiveness of the sins of creation. The old covenant is completed and the new covenant is ushered in in Christ's blood. And what's also significant, because of the cross, 
The veil being torn means that, as Sam Storm says, God in all his glory is now freely accessible to all people who come to him by faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. God is no longer confined to the temple, but now Christians are the temple of the Most High God. And he makes his dwelling by his Holy Spirit within the hearts of Christians. With all this in view, this gospel has reached its fulfillment. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We see this confession of Mark, of Jesus, the Son of God, bookended by the confession of this Roman centurion. Verse 39, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. It wasn't by means of a miracle of healing or like restoring sight to a blind man or anything like that. It was the cross of Christ that brought this Roman centurion to faith, brought this Roman centurion to confess Christ as God. Verses 41 and 40, uh, 40 and 41, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. All the twelve disciples would abandon Jesus, but these women didn't. They watched from a distance, most likely. Their love and their devotion would not waver, and they would be the first witnesses to the resurrection. Okay, so here we have it. At the end of our text today, Jesus is dead. Physically dead. The leader of this band was crucified for his troubles, and he was buried, and all seems hopeless, and yet we know how the story ends. We're going to focus on the resurrection next week, but let me just throw this out there. Spoiler alert, Jesus returns. He's resurrected just like he said he would be. I want to call you to this. Jesus chose the cross for his glory. Jesus chose the cross for the glory of God in order to make a way for you to be saved. Jesus was in complete control of this situation and willingly endured not only the physical torment of the cross, but more important, the spiritual torment of separation from God. Man, that's the most painful reality of hell. It's not the physical anguish that you go through as bad as that is, but it's the absence of the presence of God that creates the most torment for those there. And Jesus went there for you. If you are in Christ, your eternal punishment has been satisfied through Christ. Your eternal punishment has been satisfied through Jesus' death on a sinner's cross. So Christian, let me ask you this. Is your life marked by this type of faithful obedience to Jesus? And when it isn't, because it won't always be, when it isn't, is your life marked by faithful repentance to Jesus who loves you and has made a way for you to be cleansed from your sin? Are you marked by this type of faithful dependency in Jesus? Man, if you're not in Christ... Or maybe you're not sure if you believe this or not. I want to tell you this. That if this is you, the wrath of God is still upon you. 
Your eternity is still awaiting for you in the form of eternal death and eternal punishment. Man, you may think you can be good enough, live the right way, give just enough, be better than other people, and God must love you. And you have earned your place in heaven. But your good works cannot save you. Your good works will not save you because you cannot do enough of them because of how wicked your heart is. We need Jesus, who willingly died in our place to secure our salvation before a holy and just and righteous God. Our works will never be enough, and that's why Christ has to come and die in our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him, that's Jesus, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Consider the cross. Consider the sacrifice. Consider the lengths that Jesus would go to redeem your sinful condition. And he did that for the joy that was set before you. Set before him, I should say. And that joy is you and your salvation. If you are in Christ, if you claim to be in Christ, then your life must look like you have been saved and redeemed by Christ. Jesus invites us to count the cost of following him. There are costs associated with being a follower of Jesus, but there are blessings therein now and forevermore. Mark 8, 34 and following says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And what, for what can a man give in return for his soul? For is ever, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the angels. Man, the Bible defines Christianity differently than how our Western and Bible Belt hyperchurchianity would define it. Jesus is inviting you to count the cost. Jesus is inviting you into life and fellowship with him, not to play churchy games, not to check culturally Christian church boxes, to make yourself feel better about your shortcomings. Grace means now we can come running to Jesus in our failures and in our mess-ups because we cannot fix ourselves. Man, I want to call you to really consider your life Man, even just like the last seven days, if you want. And ask yourself, is my life really reflective of the calling of Jesus to me? Is my life reflective of the calling of Jesus on my life? Or are you just casually or culturally Christian? Or are you just trying to be good enough to earn salvation? to do the Jesus stuff when it's convenient for me. 
Jesus' invitation to you is to join him and join him in death. And in that, he will raise you to new life in him. Man, you were worth it to Jesus. You were worth it to Jesus, but is Jesus worth this type of sacrifice to you? Consider your life. Repent and believe by faith in him this morning. Let's pray.